Well, good morning, church. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. This will be the last time I'll be asking you to do that for quite some while, I trust. We'll be in Colossians 4, beginning in verse 7. And if you want to use the pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 985. While you're finding your way uh, to the book of Colossians, I do want to let you know, in case you were unaware, uh, last Sunday we sent out about 10% of our members to start Lovettsville Baptist Church. And they'll be having their first public service on September 12th. And, and we've been having many visitors here these days. And perhaps you live in Lovettsville or around that area. And we'd love to encourage you that you might pray for, prayerfully consider supporting that new work there at Lovettsville. And so we're excited to see what God is going to do through that ministry. I also, uh, as I note, that we've been having many, many visitors recently. Um, I'm doing my best to learn all of your names. Um, and is a bit of a challenge, so g give me some time. One way for me to learn your name well is for you to actually uh, join our new members class, which will begin on September 19th, four consecutive Sundays during our Sunday school hour, 9 to 10 a.m. Pastor Josh will be teaching most of that, but I will be teaching one of those sessions. And we love just to be able to let you know a little bit more about our church, what we believe, how we covenant, what we stand for, and so forth. And, of course, an opportunity to get to know you. We do need you to sign up for that, and you can sign up in the book at the welcome desk, and certainly we would be delighted to be able to have you with us. And so here we are in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Hear now the word of God. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may be, encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother, he, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Our Father, we're thankful for uh, this word in front of us. It is perhaps a passage that we don't often consider or those like it. We just fly right through it. And I, I, yet I wonder if, it, if it's here for a reason, for our study, for our consideration, for our, our application to our life. And so we pray that uh, you would help us to understand what you would want us to glean from it. I think we have examples of faithful Christian lives before us that we might consider. And yet we, we simply don't want a list of morals today, Father. We don't want a, simply a sermon that tells us to do better. And so help us to understand that all of these examples in front of us that we'll consider are all this way because of the gospel. 
and that is the gospel that ultimately will transform our life. And so may all that we hear be heard through the lens of a crucified Savior and a resurrected one. And Father, even as we're praying to you, uh, may we just take a moment to uh, pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan as they undergo um, such a terrible transition. We're reminded that uh, this indeed is a world of woe. Uh, this is a world in opposition to Christ, our King. And yet we know that Christ has overcome the world and that therefore we should take heart even in the midst of opposition. So we pray for those brothers and sisters there in Afghanistan who will undoubtedly have a more difficult life in the days to come. We pray that even in the difficulty, they too might take heart as Christ has told us and that you might work powerfully in their midst, that you might even through your tes their testimony and through their witness and their lives might open a door for the gospel, even as we considered last week. Of course, we, we think about those Afghanistanis who have made their way even into Northern Virginia, thousands of them, from what I understand, arriving daily by plane into Dulles. I wonder if your people do, does not have an opportunity to reach out to those in need. And so will you help us to guide us, as, even as a church out here in Western Loudoun, that we might know what opportunities lie before us to be ambassadors for Christ, uh, to this, those who are coming are largely Muslim people, that we might testify uh, to Jesus in the way that we treat them. And Father, we uh, lastly think of um, the, our servicemen and women who are serving even now in Afghanistan these final days. In particular, we think about the, I believe it is 13 uh, Marines whose life was taken just a handful of days ago. And Father, we pray for their families and ask that you would comfort them, that they would be comforted in the fact that their loved ones gave their lives to serve those in desperate need. I think that is a, a Christ-like service. Whether they serve out of a love for Christ or not, I know not. But I think to serve those and to put your life uh, on the line, as we see, for those in need, uh, there's something uh, in us that compels us to do things like that. It makes people heroes. I think it's the image of God in us. And uh, we thank you for that testimony. And so we pray for those families and ask that you would comfort them um, in a, that their loved ones had a life well lived. But ultimately we pray that you would comfort them in the gospel, that there is indeed hope after death and it is only found in faith through Jesus. May the gospel abound to those who are mourning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's in 1954 when uh, Roger Bannister became the first human being ever to run a four-minute mile. You'll excuse me uh, for reusing an illustration. Some of you heard this before. I do like it very much, though, so here we go again. Um, uh, Bannister, this is in 1954, Bannister, uh, prior to running the four-minute mile or the under-four-minute mile, uh, it was determined by all the experts that the human being cannot run that long at that speed. It would be impossible to run a four-minute minute mile. But he kept getting closer and closer and closer to it. By the way, Bannister was an amateur. He had, he had no coach. He had, had no endorsements. He, he was actually, why he was running, studying to be a, a physician, which he would later become. Um, but he, he seemed to know, somewhere in him, he could do this. He could actually beat the four-minute mile. But he would not be able to do it alone. And so he set a day to try, and, and thousands of people uh, uh, came to the, to the track and cameras were there, and this was broadcast and so forth. The gun was fired, and, and Bannister took off. 
And he, he took off, but he didn't take off alone. He actually had a friend running in front of him, a man named Chris Breyer, who was setting the pace for Bannister to keep. And Bannister said he felt so full of running that he told his friend, faster. Well, well Chris Breyer could only run that fast for a certain amount of time. And so he peeled off the track, and as soon as he peeled off the track, another friend, Chris Chataway, got onto the track and began to set the pace at this point for Bannister. Until the, about the final lap, about 300 yards to go, um, the, he, he ran off. He couldn't keep the pace, and Bannister was left running that last 300 all by himself as he darted, crossing the finish line in a mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. Uh, the first human being ever to run a four-minute mile. Now, of course, Bannister gets all the credit, and, and he certainly deserved quite a bit of it. He was the one who ran the mile. Uh, but it's easy to forget, perhaps, that this is a feat he didn't think he could do alone. And as we think about Paul and we close the book of Colossians, we think about a man who wrote Scripture. We think of a man who planted churches all over uh, the Roman world, a man who fought heretics, a man who stood before mobs, a man who, who had trial after trial, was bitten, beaten, was in prison, uh, a, a man who raised the dead, a man who healed the sick. And, and you might, therefore, imagine the greatness of Paul, like this great apostle sitting upon a throne somewhere and informing and in, instructing and, and sending and ordering and plotting and determining and, and confident in charge. That's maybe the, the Paul that you have in mind. But if that's what you think of Paul, or if I may apply it to ourselves, if that's what you think about the Christian life, I think you would do well to listen to these somewhat obscure verses at the end of the book of Colossians. Because I think what we discover is that the apostle to the Gentiles actually reached the nations with friends. Uh, with friends. With other brothers and sisters serving together. And in fact, I think we see this not just in Paul's life, but, but in the entire birth of the church. You read the book of Acts, of course, which is, tells us the story of how the church began. Do you know how many Christians are named in the book of Acts? Uh, of, course, of course, we know Paul, right? We know Peter, Barnabas, perhaps. Silas, he's in there. We, James, we, we know the big ones. You know there's actually over 100 different people n named in the book of Acts who are working for the cause of the church. And I think we see something of that here in, uh, in the end of Colossians. We see 10 names here that Paul will use. End of Romans is very similar. Paul will mention actually 16 people in the end of Romans. Here are 10 names. I think if Paul was sending a picture with this letter like we might do today, uh, there would be 10 people out there in front of the jail cell and, and Paul, you know, with his head out the window waving or something like that, right? There would be a picture accompanied. Now we see all these guys. That Paul wants us to be aware of who they are, right? That's interesting, I, I think. Most of these names, you'll recognize a couple, but most of them you won't most likely, unless you're a real Bible nerd, okay? Um, most of these guys, you'll, you'll, this is perhaps the first time you'll hear of them. Just 10 people doing ministry about 2,000 years ago. And yet God thinks they should be in Scripture. He names them and has their names in the Bible because God values people who serve his church. And one day, I trust, Christian, you'll meet these guys. Right? One day you'll be walking around hev heaven and you'll bump into some guy and he'll say, hi, you know, I'm Stephen, what's your name? He says, I'm Tychicus. And he goes, oh yeah, I heard about Tychicus. Uh, are you that Tychicus? Yeah, that's me. And you'll get a selfie with Tychicus there in heaven or something like that. Okay? You'll, you'll run into a guy named Jesus and you go, oh, I, Jesus, really? I heard of you. No, not that Jesus. Call me Justice, okay? And, and you'll say, oh, okay, didn't I hear something about that in the book of Colossians? Yeah, and, and we find these individuals here. We're, we're reminded that, that people are needed to serve God's church. In fact, we come to this point of, of the, uh, we call it the book of Colossians. It's not really a book, is it? 
and we're reminded it's not a book. When we get to this end, we're reminded it's a letter, that Paul's not writing a seminary paper. He's not writing a doctrinal positional paper. He's not writing a book. He's writing a message, a letter, to a certain people. Because we're told, and we see here very clearly, that Christianity is relational. It's relational. Which is interesting. Think about the book of Colossians. You think about our whole study of it together. The first half is very theological, isn't it? I mean, these incredible propositional statements about Christ and being the firstborn among the dead and created of all things and everything exists for him and the great redeemer. And we just get this wonderful and amazing theology. And some of you here in the pews, you love that theology. You're like, I just love theology. I love doctrine. I want to read and think and discuss and The more Latin terms I get, the better off I am, right? You you think, come on, pastor, give me theology. That's what I want. I want theology. And then there's some of you who are all about relationships, okay? Like how you interact with each other and how you love one another and how you you serve and and support. And and you're thinking, I I just want someone to bless. I just want some place to serve. Like half the church, I think, is, is off, you know, like reading the book the pastor told you to read. But then you hear Jill's hurting, so you put down the book. Right, to go help Jill, and now you can't find your book anymore, okay? Some of you are, are like that. The other half of you are, are, are thinking, wait, Jill was hurting? I didn't know I was reading the book. And by the way, who's Jill? Okay? And that's how kind of the churches line up. you got some churches, very doctrinal churches, right? You've been to those churches. Some churches are very kind of relational churches. I think the beauty of the Bible, and particularly the book of Colossians, or the letter of Colossians, is that it tells us we should be both. Right? So theology, does that have its place? Yeah, yeah, you better believe it. Relationship? Service? Yeah. We need both. We, we need to hunger for scripture, and we need to hunger to love one another well. Kind of like Jesus. Didn't he do that? And so we see in this passage, I, I think that these relationships are important. We might even call them friendships. Friendships. I'll, that's all I'll be referring to them today. Maybe you want like service, uh, ministry, uh, whatever you want, you can insert your own term, but, but these, type of, these are relationships that we have that our culture tends to minimize. Right? We don't, as a culture, value brotherly love. That's not something that's high on our radar. Our culture, to be perfectly honest, we value erotic love. That's what's like the most important thing in our culture. So you go to the grocery store this afternoon, and you're checking out, and you see the magazines right there. I, I'm pretty sure you're not going to see a, you know, the, the main story on the, on the magazine what celebrity is now best friends with whatever, whatever celebrity, right? Who's BFF with who, okay? What we want to know as a culture, evidently, is who's sleeping with who, right? That's really good. That's what we value as a culture, and that's what's all over, all over the press, right? We don't care who's friends with who, right? We don't want to know that. You leave our, by the way, our more individualistic culture, and you go to a more traditional culture, and the relationships that are most important there are family, it's mom and dad and uncle and aunt and cousin and, and family living together and, and tribe. It's the people you, you're related to. You go to more socialistic cultures, and it's all the civic relationships. You go to China, and, and the relationships most important there are, are your neighbor and, and your work relationships. But wherever you go, you'll find that friendship is always minimized. It, it's, it's, a, it's the only relationship we have that's not necessary. You can live a life without friends. You can't do so probably without work or without family, certainly, right? It, it, it will never push itself on you. It, it's not a necessity. And yet I, I think if you want to experience what God wants for you, you're going to actually need these relationships. You're, you're going to need uh, friends. You're going to need to be a friend. And today we see 10 of Paul's friends. 
10 characteristics of Christian friends. Now, of course, you can't determine your friend's behavior, but you can determine your own. And I pray this would be helpful for you, that we see what Christian friends are to be like. Um, and once again, even as I prayed, I, I pray that we would hear this all through the gospel. We're going to end in the gospel as to how the gospel empowers us to do this. So don't think just, uh, here's a bunch of morals we have to do, just more law. No, these are, um, I think, the rightful response to what Christ has done for us through the gospel. So number one, uh, let me introduce you to Tychicus as we learn that Christian friends are servants. By the way, 10 points. Uh, for some of you, that's terrifying. But uh, we, I, I, trust, we'll, we'll move quickly, okay? Some of you are like, yeah, all right, let's do it. Um, so Christian friends are servants. Verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activity. He is a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant or fellow slave, literally, in the Lord. So we see that Tychicus is going to, he's with Paul, he's going to end up in Colossians. Like he's going to give them a report. He's going to tell them about um, Paul's activities. We actually meet Tychicus in Acts chapter 20. We see him throughout the rest of the book of Acts. He seems to be with Paul quite often and always with Paul. And, and here we find that Tychicus is being sent from Colossians, no doubt to bring the letter which Paul has just written. Right? So Tychicus is going to be the letter courier from Rome, where Paul is in prison, all the way to Colossae, and most likely the, the, the companion letter to Colossians, the letter of Philemon. Interesting enough, we read in Ephesians 6 that it is the same Tychicus that it was sent by Paul to bring the letter of, to the Ephesian church. So he, I don't know if he wore, wore brown shorts or what's going on, but Tychicus is always out there delivering Paul's letters. We read it in Titus 3 that it's Tychicus who was sent to Titus on Crete to replace him in ministry. We read in 2 Timothy that it was Tychicus, once again, that was sent to relieve Timothy from his pastoral work. And so Tychicus is always delivering stuff for Paul. He's always on the move, deliver this letter, check up on this flock, relieve this weary pastor, encourage these Christians. As you know, uh, that's particular's ministry here in verse 8. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that, we, uh, that, that he may encourage your hearts. So the Colossians are evidently concerned about Paul. How's Paul doing? Paul wants to put them at ease because he loves them, right? And they evidently love him because they're concerned about him. By the way, they've never met, but this is what the gospel does. It binds our hearts together, even with Christians we've never met. And Paul says, okay, he's going to come. He's going to tell you all about me. You're going to be very encouraged by the report uh, that he has, even as he brings this letter. Now, chances are you probably didn't know much about Tychicus before you came here. This is kind of an unnoticed work, isn't it? And yet, I think an incredibly important work. Like, what, what use would Paul's letters be if they were not delivered? I mean, what, what would have been lost to us if Tychicus wasn't faithful? He gave up halfway through the, what is it, 1,300-mile journey from Rome to Colossae. You realize the reason uh, you have your Bible in English this morning is by a man named William Tyndale. I, I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, Tyndale translated the Bible in English in the 16th century, when up to that point it was only in Latin, and that was by edict according to the Roman Catholic Church. So it would be illegal for the Bible to be in any common term because the church did not want people reading the Bible. William Tyndale thought that would be a silly idea, and so he translated against the law uh, the Bible into English. Had to flee England to do so. I think he was in Germany during the time in which he was translating the Bible into England. His best friend betrayed him. He was arrested. He was taken back to England where he was uh, burned at the stake because he translated the Bible into England. The reason you have the Bible in English is because of a man named William Tyndale, but not just William Tyndale. You've heard of him, I'm, maybe. Have you ever heard of Henry Monmouth? Henry Monmouth? Probably not. 
Henry Monmouth was a contemporary of Tyndale's who owned a fleet of ships. And whenever Tyndale published a bunch of Bibles, Henry Monmouth put them on his ships and he sent them all over the English Empire. So the, the authorities sought to track down every one of these English Bibles and burn them. Did, did many, but they couldn't find them all because an unknown man named Henry Monmouth had sent them all over the world. He's like a Tychicus, isn't he? And aren't we blessed because of that? We have the Bible, and we can read it even now because of men like him. I think the cause of Christ, in other words, is advanced by countless unseen servants. This seems to be the hallmark to Christianity. When the world is consumed with self, and the world is consumed with me, and I just want to do what I want, I want to be myself and find myself, and the world is consumed with taking and what's good for me, Christians are to be marked by actually giving ourselves to others, by serving. I, I wonder if Tychicus ever thought, you know, aren't I too important to deliver letters? I mean, don't I have too many gifts to do this job? Do you know why we have a nursery right now? I've got a bunch of kids in the nursery. And we, we have a nursery because there are people in this church who love you enough to serve in the nursery so that you can gather and worship with God's people. Do, do you know why we're able to manage the finances of this church? Because there are people who love this church enough that they actually stay after service when we're all going out to lunch. Uh, they're actually in an upper room for the next 30 minutes, 45 minutes, counting the money in which... We receive. Do, do you know why m many people visit Hamilton Baptist Church? There's a sign right out, right out there that always has up-to-date information. Because right? people love our community enough that there will be a family out there this afternoon changing the sign, putting something new up there in order to help attract visitors. Do, do you, know what, you know why you can hear me right now? Or, or maybe even watch me on the live stream? Is because there are people who love this church enough. They're working right in that booth. There's about what, four or five of them right now working doing all sorts of knobs and levers. I don't know what's happening back there, but, but I know you can hear me because, because of this. Because of this. What if holding babies and running a soundboard and counting money was worthy of your effort because it serves this church? It's been said sometimes, maybe you've heard this, that the local church is like a football game, right? Football starting up. You guys like football? All right. 22 players on the field, badly in need of rest. Hundreds of people in the stands, badly in need of exercise. Okay? <laughs> Some of you need to get in the game, is what I'm saying. And I think now that we have sent out 10% of our membership, some of them uh, credible servants in this church, fulfilling very important roles in this church, I think perhaps more now than, than ever in my nine years of pastoring here, uh, we need... We need you to serve, because Christian friends are servants. Secondly, meet Onesimus. As we learn, Christian friends are transformed. Note verse 9. He says, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Tychicus is not going alone. Onesimus is coming with him. You notice Onesimus, he says, is one of you. Not that he's a Christian, though he is. That's not what Paul's referring to. But he's from Colossae. Now, the, the, that presents a problem. The problem is, is how he would be received when he's returned because Onesimus is a thief and a runaway slave. And uh, I hope to consider much of his story as we will turn next and, and do a very quick study of the book of Philemon on which Onesimus is one of the main characters. And in that book, we, we learned that this man was an unbeliever. 
He stole uh, from his master and then fled, uh, f- fled from him in Colossians, ends up in Rome, hoping to lose himself among the masses, start a new life, and, and, and yet he bumps into this guy, Paul, right? And Paul tells this runaway slave and this thief about Jesus, and Onesimus receives Christ as his Savior. One uh, author puts it this way, once ungrateful and unloving, Onesimus now abounded with love. Once dishonest, he was willing to make restitution. Once morose, he now entered joyfully into the praise of the church in Rome. Onesimus had been revolutionized by God's grace. And, And we see some of that transformation in his life in the fact that he is now willingly going to return to his master to seek reconciliation. I mean, I can only imagine what an encouragement he must have been to Paul, uh, this new believer. Don't you realize new believers are so encouraging to be around, aren't they? To see people co- turn from their ways and to receive Christ and to bow their knee to him. And in particular, I think this man must have been an incredible encouragement to Paul. Uh, I, in fact, I love the fact that Paul, this uh, glorious and powerful and great man, is making time for a runaway slave. I mean, you think Paul's spending time with governors and professors and business leaders and, and all the rest. And Paul says, no, I, I, like this, I like this thief. I'm going to spend some time with him. It's very Christ-like, isn't it? In fact, I love that he called Tychicus, uh, who was a freeman, a fellow slave in the Lord. But he calls Onesimus, who's a slave, a beloved brother. Right? Because we've already learned from this book, haven't we? He told us in Colossians 3 that in the church there's neither slave nor free, for Christ is all and he is in all, as we see Paul's team coming together. We've got a free man, we got a slave, we'll find out we got Gentiles, we have Jews, we have doctors, we have convicts, right? And, and Christians love them all. The, the Christian gospel overcomes all these barriers because sometimes Christian friends are transformed. Third, meet Aristarchus, as he teaches us, Christian friends are loyal. So we see in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. That's all he tells about Aristarchus here in this letter, but we we learn about this man in Acts chapter 19, when an Ephesian mob drags Paul and, yes, Aristarchus into a theater, this riotous mob chanting their, their praise to the idol Artemis. And this, he survived by God's grace. Along with Paul, that mob, he travels with Paul to Jerusalem when Paul's arrested there in Jerusalem. And then we read in Acts 17 that he's actually on the boat with Paul when Paul, under arrest, is being sent to Rome and gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And now what do we discover? Just a couple of verses, but we're told something very interesting. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, uh, greets you. And so we, now we, we find that he's, he's in prison. We don't know why. Some suggest that he has actually actually volunteered to be in prison in order to help Paul in the ministry from the prison. What we do know is he's always with, always with Paul. He's loyal. I'm with you, Paul. I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm by your side. And I'll tell you, if you get one Aristarchus in your life, uh, you are blessed with him. Someone just in, with you throughout the time, whatever it might be. The book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 20 and verse 6, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Right? No drama. No, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. No secrets. Hey, don't tell them this or let's keep this from them. I'm with you. The, the, the Puritan reminds me, the Puritans would, would often call, uh, refer, had this phrase, swallow friends, and, and swallow, not by uh, swallow chewing something, but the bird, swallow. Uh, in the summer, I'm here. In the winter, I'm gone. Right? In the winter, when th- you know, I'll see you when things are better. Right? Do you have some of those friends? Well, Aristarchus wasn't one of them. 
he was loyal. Again, the book of Proverbs is helpful, I think, in chapter 17 and verse 17, we read, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Right, so family's there in adversity. Your brother's born for adversity. Trouble comes, you, your, your brother may not like you, but you could probably count on him, right? He may not want to hang out with you, but he's there in the times of trouble. But he says a friend loves at all times, at all times. When someone loves you at all times, not because they have to, but because they've chosen to, that's a good friend, right? When you say to your friend in the midst of trouble, I'm good, I can handle this, and your friend says, listen, I'm not going to let you go through this alone. I'm with you. I don't care what you say, I'm with you, right? I think Jesus wants us to be friends like that. I think Jesus is a friend like that. I see Christian friends are loyal. Fourth, meet Mark, who tells us that Christian friends are forgiven. We see there in verse 10, reading on, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, uh, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now we know, you. this is one of the guys you know, right, Mark? Mark, sometimes called John Mark. We meet him early in the book of Acts. Mark's mom is one of the first people to allow the church in Jerusalem to meet in her home. Now the church was 3,000 people, so the whole church wasn't meeting in her home. She's just holding a community group in her home. That was Mark's mama. And then Mark, of course, was so impacted by the gospel, when, uh, when Paul and Barnabas are being sent out as these first missionaries, we know that Mark goes with them. Mark says, count me in, I want to go, and he goes off on this missionary journey with them. But we also know that Mark only makes it a little while, right? And uh, just a little bit into the mission trip, he abandons them, he checks out and says, uh, this isn't for me, I need to go back to mama, okay? And we don't know why. But it, it might have been missions, he thought missions would be exciting, you meet interesting people, go to interesting places. He didn't know about the mobs and the prisonments and the beatings. And so Mark says, that's not really for me, I think I, I want to go home. And so Paul and Barnabas, they would finish their mission trip together and then come back. And once they recovered, they said, well, it's time to go out again and go out on a second mission trip. And you know, Barnabas says, well, let's go get Mark. And Paul says, what are, you, are you kidding me? We're not getting Mark. Right, when we needed Mark... He turned on us. He left. It's not happening. Mark's not coming. Right? Barnabas says, yes, he is. Paul says, no, he's not. And so at this point, you know this story, right? Paul and Barnabas split up. And Barnabas go grabs Mark, and they go on their mission trip, which we have no idea what they did. The Bible doesn't record. The Bible then, at this point, follows Paul when he goes out and grabs Silas. And Paul and Silas, they go on their mission trip. Now, we don't know anything what happened with Barnabas and Mark on their trip, but we do know that eventually they met up with Peter. Now, who better to teach someone who was following Christ and then failed, got scared and ran, and then was restored back to it than Peter, right? Peter says, I walked that path, buddy, and so let me show you how we could get through this, right? And, and eventually, according, right here, uh, Colossians 4, uh, verse 10, we see who's together. That's Paul and Mark. They're back together. Twelve years later, after the split, Mark, once again, is among Paul's fellow co-workers. We'll find him in Philemon, when we study that book, where he calls Mark my fellow worker. In 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul will ever write, he's writing to Timothy, he says, come, Timothy, come soon, I need you. But he says there at the end, get Mark and bring him, because he is very helpful to me in my ministry. Right? And so they're restored. He's forgiven. In fact, you notice he mentions Mark's cousin, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, now, he would only do so if the Colossians knew about this story, right? If I were telling you, hey, Fred says hello, and you're thinking, who's Fred? And I say, oh, Fred, the cousin of Lenny. You go, oh, okay, that Fred, right?
right? I'd only say the cousin of Lenny if you knew who the cousin is, right? If you know the situation. So evidently they're aware of Mark, and Mark might make his way to Colossians. Uh, Paul is saying, if he comes, listen, I don't want you to hold these things against him. I want you to what? What does he say? Welcome him. Don't keep these past problems against us. Which, of course, Mark teaches us to have an open heart. Because in the Christian life, sadly, you, if you walked it long enough, you know disagreements will come. You know divisions will rise. And we, brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, need to work through those. We need to extend forgiveness and grace, knowing that in Christ, broken relationships can be restored. That's the heart of our faith. We're restored to Jesus. Therefore, you can be restored to others. Paul writes in Colossians 3 and verse 13, doesn't he? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And this actually happens again and again and again. When we realize how much Christ has forgiven us, we will find power to extend it to others as we see Christian friends are forgiven. Fifth, meet Jesus' justice. As we learn that Christian friends are comforting. Just a few words here of this man. The only place we'll find him in the Bible. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called justice, uh, these are the only men of the circumcision, that means they're, they're Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So Jesus' justice is one of uh, Paul's few Jewish friends. There are three of them amongst this list of ten, right? Aristarchus, uh, John, Mark, and Jesus' justice. It's interesting to me that Mark is an ethnic minority on his own missionary team. So what we learn is that the gospel uh, through the gospel, we should form relationships with people unlike us, right? We'll weave our hearts together as we share life with those that we have very little in common with. That's what the gospel does. But we also see here, don't we, that we do find particular comfort with people who share some background with us, right? If, like if you have small children, or you're retired, or you're a widow, or you're a single mom, or you're a teenager, or a businessman, or a business owner, or a pastor, or a Dodgers fan, right? You find comfort with people in those similar situations, don't you? That's what Paul's saying. Paul says, hey, my Jewish brothers, they give me comfort. You see, Christian friends are comforting. Sixth, meet Epaphras. So we learn that Christian friends are loving. Epaphras, we learn of him here in verse 12, isn't it? Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You see, once again, Epaphras, he says, like Onesimus, he's one of you. He's from Colossae. He's actually their pastor. We believe this is the man who planted the church in Colossians. He was introduced to us. You might not remember this. Uh, it was last year we started this book. In chapter 1, verse 7, we're introduced to Epaphras. That Paul says, hey, Epaphras is here. He's told me all about you. We know that Epaphras sought out Paul in Rome in order to find help and counsel for the church that's encountering all this false teaching that we consider in chapter 2. That's why we have the book of Colossians. Epaphras went to Paul. Paul says, let me write this letter. Uh, we'll discover and fight. Um, of course, he's their pastor. Now, you notice he's not coming back. Epaphras greets you. And they may wonder, well, why isn't our pastor coming back? Right? You went to Paul to get this letter. Now the letter's coming with this guy named Tychicus. But why is our pastor not returning? We discover in the book of Philemon that Epaphras has been arrested. So he can't return. But his heart is still with his church. Paul says he's struggling with you, for you, in prayers. He says he's praying and praying and praying for you. And it's, his prayers is, is a struggle. It's like a wrestling match. Now we're not sure why he's having such a hard time praying. 
but perhaps it's just there because he's not there to defend his flock. He wants to be with his people. And it's out of his concern for their spiritual well-being, he's praying earnestly, asking God what, that they would stand mature and fully assured, just as Paul has taught us at the end of Colossians chapter 1. I think it might have been a particular blessing for them to hear of their pastor's love for them, that he is interceding in this way. I think he must have been an incredible blessing to the church at Colossae. An incredible impact upon this congregation. Um, I, I, I wonder if you, think, even thinking about his impact upon them, do you see something of yourself in this? Do you see something of your own impact upon the congregation in which you're a part of, the, the love in which you share with your brothers and sisters in the church? You know, let me ask you this question, Christian. If, if you are to move from Hamilton Baptist Church, if you are to leave this church, will the church be poor because of it? Will, will, will you be missed? Can I say that that way? Is there someone here or people here that you're loving so well that when you leave, we feel your absence? I, th I think we should. Uh, teenagers, let me, let me just talk to you for a moment. So we think about this man, an example here. Is your brother or sister, maybe you have a little brother or sister, is your brother and sister a better Christian because they share the same bedroom with you? or because they share the same home with you. I wonder, teenager, do you ever think that part of the ministry God has given to me is to help my little sister stand firm in God because of the way I love her and the way I pray for her? You see, Christian friends are loving. Seventh, meet Luke, as we see Christian friends are steadfast. We read in verse 14, don't we? Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And so, see here, Luke uh, is introduced to us. We know elsewhere Luke is constant and committed to Paul. I think probably if Paul had a brother in ministry, there's certainly Silas, there's certainly Barnabas. I, th uh, I think above all, it would have been Luke. Luke, Luke, uh, Luke was just am amazingly by Paul's side per pretty much for the entire time. In fact, from this passage, it doesn't tell us much, but we actually learned two things we would not learn without those, what, six, six words, is it? Uh, we learn, first of all, that Luke's a doctor. We never knew that until we read Colossians 4.14. That's the only place we find that. And we learn that Luke is a Gentile, as we find that because he's not listed among the Jewish believers uh, there with Paul. It, it's, by the way, it's interesting that with Paul and Colossians are two of the gospel writers, both Mark and Luke. Of course, we know Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And so Luke will write about one-fourth of the New Testament. You may not know this. Luke actually writes more of the New Testament than Paul does. He is the biggest contributor, this Gentile, uh, his biggest contributor to the New Testament than, than anyone. And he's always with Paul. He's always at his side. Now, it's somewhat hard to see because he won't mention himself by name when he writes the book of Acts. He's very self-effacing. And so you have to listen for the change in pronouns. And we get to Acts 16, and we read like, okay, he'll write, well, they went over there, and they met with Timothy, and somewhere in Acts 16, the pronoun changes, and all of a sudden we read, we've made a voyage. And we are going to the place of prayer and things like that. And from that point, Luke is with Paul by his side. And he is into the very end in 2 Timothy when Paul is going over one person after another. That This person left, this person left, this person left. And he gets to the point, he says, only Luke is with me. Right? Faithful to the end. What a gift from God Luke was to Paul. As we see that Christian friends are steadfast. Eighth, we learn that Christian friends are givers. Now this is, I love these, uh, 
I don't know if you're enjoying this, by the way, but I find this incredibly fascinating. So uh, at least one of us is having a good time. Um, and, and in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm love verses 15 and 16, right? Uh, here, I uh, just think, find it so incredibly helpful as one who, by God's grace, seeks to help lead a church. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And what we're learning here, but, uh, don't read that. We read too, too fast by that. We're reading that there's a network of churches, isn't there? All within 15 miles of each other. You got Colossians, Colossae. You got Laodicea. And then you got this house church where, where they're meeting at Nympha's house. You look up in verse 13, we need a, another church. For I bear him witness, this is about Epaphras, that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So now you got Hierapolis. You got Hierapolis, you got Laodicea, you got Colossae, you got uh, Nympha and her church. And Paul says to the, to the Colossians, be sure to greet the brothers in these other churches. Go, go make sure you go down to Laodicea and tell them Paul says hi. Now that's interesting to me because Paul actually writes a letter to Laodicea. Read the next verse. And when the letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul says, I'm writing a letter to Colossians, to Colossae. I'm writing a letter to Laodicea. Okay, follow me? And, but he says to, in the letter to, uh, to the Colossians, he says, make sure you go tell the Laodiceans, I say hello. That's what he says there in verse 15. But if you're writing a letter to the Laodiceans, why don't you just say hello yourself? Why tell the Colossians to go give greetings to the Laodiceans if you're writing to them? And the only reason I could think is that Paul wants to encourage fellowship between churches by asking one church to greet another church on his behalf. And it's passages like this that are so helpful for me that has led our church to partner with other local like-minded churches in a local association through the Pillar Network where we exist to encourage one another and plant churches together and revitalize churches together because I think we see that's the biblical model. But as if that's not interesting enough, look again at verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. It's very similar to 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, what Paul is saying is when the church gathers, grab my letter and read it. And, and of course, they would only, the only thing they'd be reading when the church gathers is scripture. Right? This is their tradition. They would gather together and be scripture reading. And so we can safely conclude that Paul is aware at this time that he is actually writing scripture. That he knows that. And he is commanding them to read his letters because they bear authority. And not just to that church. Send this letter to that other church because it has authority for them. And take their letter and you read it in your church because that has authority for you. And so one of the reasons when we gather as Hamilton Baptist Church now 2,000 years later, what do we do? Every Sunday we read scripture. We do. In fact, usually what we do is we read from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. So we'll take the passage that's being preached, whether that's old or new, and then we'll find a parallel passage in the alternative testament. So every Sunday when you, God's people gather together, they hear the Old Testament read, they hear the New Testament read. That's not the latest church growth method, trust me. A lot of churches aren't reading the Bible anymore. We're doing it because simply we see passages like this. And even more clearly, 1 Timothy 4.14, listen, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. I think there's something significant when God's people congregate together and we're, we're praising God, we're praying, we're, we're, we're preaching, we're speaking, we're, we're active. 
But there's a time in our service when we are all silent. And we just let God speak to us. And all of us together. Tell us what we ought to know, God. And we see this from the very beginning. Now, in particular, you'll notice there's this woman, Nympha, back in verse 15. She offers up her home as a meeting place for the church. Uh, perhaps she's a wealthy widow who uses her resources to support the church. You'll note that there is no church building uh, until the early uh, 4th century. Uh, there's the 312s. It's in Syria, I believe it is. And so about 250 years, 300 years, they're meeting in fields. They're meeting in the temple courts we know in Jerusalem. They're meeting in each other's homes. This is where they had to meet. The church congregates. That's what it means to be a church, to be, to be called together. Right? But you have to co be congregate somewhere. Right? And so they would, in this particular place, met in this woman's home. Right? Uh, she opened up her home that the word of God might go forth and God's people might worship. She's a giver. She wants to do this. And, so, and some of you are, are givers. All of you should be givers. Uh, I'll tell you, the only reason I could preach the word to you uh, is because you give to this church. Uh, and, and I, therefore, don't have to have another job. I could devote my time to pastoring this church and writing my sermons and preparing them so that I might deliver them to you. I, I can only do that because you give. We're, we're in this beautiful building um, that's existed now, at least part of it, for over 100 years. Uh, we own 100% of this building. We have no zero debt on this building. This sanctuary that we're in, it's, I don't know, about 15 years ago, Don, it was, it was constructed before I was even here, and we didn't borrow a single penny. How can we build a building like this in Loudoun County without borrowing? Because people give. People give. That's why we could do this. People, Christians, Christian friends are givers. Well, ninth, uh, you see Christian friends, uh, we get kind of negative, so uh, we'll, we'll add the parentheses, sometimes idle. And our buddy Archippus tells us this. I find this somewhat amusing. Uh, verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, we don't know much about Archippus. We know that he's received a ministry from God. We don't know what it is, but we do know he's not doing it. Okay? And so Paul says in a public letter, tell Archippus to get to work. Right? So I think I, find I would like to, I'd like to talk to Archippus. What was it like when Colossians was first read and every eye went to you when Paul gets to the Archippus part? Right? Hey, Archippus needs to do what God has called him to do. I mean, could you imagine being, like, singled out in the church bulletin? Lenny, you're dropping the ball as a deacon. Get to work, okay? Okay? I mean, that's what Paul's doing. Just calling him out. Hey, let's do it. Archippus, you're idle, right? You need to do what you're supposed to do. Now, I wonder, do you know what you're supposed to do? God laid upon you what you're supposed to do. The question is, are you doing it? Are you doing what you're supposed to do? There's someone you need to apologize to. You know this. I need to apologize to so-and-so. Someone you need to reconcile with. Someone you need to serve. Right? Someone, some ministry you need to support. Right? Some change you need to raise, uh, 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 some change you need to make in, in raising your kids. You just know this. God wants me to do this. I need to start reading the Bible with my kids. Right? Well, get it done. Let's get going. Stop dragging your feet. Do it. Right? Just like Archivist. Hey, do it. Do what needs to be done. And so he's encouraging him here, isn't he? And in doing so um, somewhat forcefully, um, he says, hey, let's go. Let's get this done. And, and I think we, you know where we find this encouragement? You're only going to get encouragement like this uh, when you need maybe a little push from people who know you well. The only way you're going to let peop uh, people know you well is, is if you let them know you well. 
And so if you think church is just a place to sit for an hour and a half and receive and then go on your merry way and you're not forming any relationships, you're not serving, you'll never have, it. really you won't have any of them. You won't have loving, steadfast friends and loyal friends and comforting friends. The place where I receive this ministry in my life is through my community group. Um, and, and we've been meeting for a number of years now and, and I have found loyal and steadfast and encouraging and comforting and forgiving friends there. And, and I would encourage you that, to, uh, that you might want prayfully consider getting involved in this. I know we're going to try to be starting a number of new ones. Pastor Josh is providing leadership there, um, and, and we want uh, these ministries to be thriving as we develop these relationships uh, with us, as we see Christian friends are sometimes idle. Last one. You okay? We're doing all right? Uh, right. Here we go. Demas. Demas teaches us that Christian friends sometimes quit. Sometimes quit. I skipped him. Look up in verse 14. We don't see much about him here, do we? As does Demas. Luke says hello, as does Demas. We'll learn about Demas. He's still uh, from the better letter of Philemon. He'll just mention him by name. One other place we hear about Demas, and it's in Paul's last letter that I'll ever write, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he will say, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That's somewhat of a haunting epitaph, I think. We don't know the end of Demas' story. We might bump into him in heaven one day. Right? John Mark had some trouble. He came back, Onesimus, but by God's grace turned his life around. We don't know about Demas. We, the last we hear about him is he's, he's deserted Paul. He's left the faith. He started well. He's here in Colossians with him, um, but it comes a time where he deserts because Paul says he loves this present world. I don't, do you know people like that? They went to Christian school, professed Christ, and uh, started well, and now they're not doing so hot. Um, maybe, maybe you know a pastor who once taught the Bible and now is an atheist. Uh, maybe, maybe you know a, a missionary who once spread the word and, and now um, living in sin. I, I think about my own life. The person most responsible, or one of the persons most responsible for my early Christian growth has walked away. Uh, he's he's kind of like Demas because he loves the present world. I wonder if um, I wonder if there are any Demases here now, here today. Um, and Demas was with Paul, right? So I, he went to church services, just like you're here now, right? Um, and 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 yet, um, sadly, he he left. Demas seemed to love God, uh, but time revealed where his true love lied. I, I would tell you, in light of this man, beware of the world. The, the world will try to lure you slowly and subtly, right? You'll, it starts, I think, when you begin to approve of what the world proves and celebrate what the world celebrates and strive after what the world commends to us. I could talk to the teenagers just one last time this morning. I, I think you in particular are a, a special target for the world. Um, I think the world is going to offer you its treasures. I think the world constantly wants your love and affection. I think it does so just like Satan did to Jesus when he said, hey, come worship me. Give me your heart and I'll, I'll give you the pleasures of this world. And sadly, many, many people make this deal. They leave Christ and side with the enemies so that they might play with just these passing amusements and trifles that this world offers. Of course, this raises the question, Demas raises the question, can a Christian fall away? Can a Christian leave the faith? And, and I, I hope you hear everything I have to say. Just don't take one of my sentences because I think you might misconstrue it. But if I, I believe that scripture teaches us 
that when you become a Christian, you are a new creation in Christ. I believe you have received eternal life. I believe you are born again of the Spirit. I believe you are united with Christ. I believe you are raised from the dead. I believe you are seated in the heavenly places where Christ is. I believe you are adopted into God's family when you become a Christian. I believe all that is done by God. I believe none of it can be undone. I also believe that there is warning after warning after warning in Scripture warning us not to walk away from Jesus. And I think it's perhaps these warnings that are used by God to keep us close. Now, I like what one author put it, and you may not like this, but I'm going to read it anyways. The, the, the Bible doesn't answer the question, can a Christian fall away with a yes or a no? It answers it with an, an emphatic don't. I find that helpful. I, I, I want to be clear. I believe in eternal security. I believe once to save, you will always be saved. But when you begin to presume upon that doctrinal statement, I think you put yourself in a dangerous position. I think we need to labor to hold on to our faith in the midst of the world's temptation. I think Bunyan is perhaps helpful in his, uh, I don't know if you ever read Pilgrim's Progress, um, but it's the story of Christian making his way to the celestial city and his pilgrimage to it. And, and Christian and his buddy Hopeful, they get in Celestial City. It's this glorious, wonderful scene. If all you have, just, just spend, it's all online. It's all um, free now. You just read the last chapter of Pilgrim's Progress. It's this beautiful picture of a Christian entering into heaven. But it doesn't end there, interestingly enough. There's another paragraph. Bunyan writes, Now while I was gazing upon these things, I turned my head to look back and saw ignorance come up from the riverside, but he soon got over, and that without half the difficulty which the other two men met with. For it happened that there was then in that place one vain hope, a ferryman, that his, with his boat helped him over. So he, as the other I saw, did ascend the hill to come to the gate, and he then began to knock, supposing that entrance should have been quickly administered to him. But he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, what would you have? He answered, I have ate and drank in the presence of the king, and he has taught in our streets. Then they asked him for his certificate, that they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled in his bosom for one and found none. They, then they said, have you none? But the man answered never a word. So they told the king, but he would not come down to see him, but commanded his two shining ones that conducted Christian and hopeful into the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot. And have him away. Then they took him and carried him through the air to the door that I saw on the side of the hill and put him in there. And then Bunyan ends, writing, Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gate of heaven. I don't know if Demas found that way. I pray that none of you will find it. You see, sadly, Christian friends sometimes quit. And so might we just end our time, just two minutes, with the proper way to enter. Look how Paul ends this letter, there in verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So Paul, who dictates his letters, takes the quill from his scribe, and he, he writes there this last verse with his own hand. He leaves us with two thoughts. One, he says, remember my chains, right? Be willing to suffer for Jesus and his church. Right? Paul is, he's reminding them, they might encounter opposition, you and I might have to suffer. Right? And then he says simply, grace be with you. And so we're reminded, it's only by grace that we enter heaven. 
You see, it's grace that brings us into this relationship with Jesus, that we, we might even say a, a friendship with Jesus, right? You, do you realize Jesus was accused of being a friend? <laughs> a friend of, you know what? Sinners. Now, uh, I'm just looking around the room, I have to say that, a, that such accusation was accurate, okay? That he is indeed a friend of sinners. Even as I look into the mirror, I see that true in my own life. Jesus is the sinner's best friend. Do you know that friendship? You, you can only know it by, well, how Paul ends, he, with grace. In fact, it was right before Jesus' death, right in the evening before he died, in John 15, he says, I'm no longer calling you servants, <laughs> but rather, I now call you friends. And for my friends, I will die. You know what his friends did afterward? Before he died, from that point, he says, I, I, you're my friends, I'm going to die for my friends, and then he'll die just hours later. But in between, his friends will betray him, right? His friends would deny him. His friends would run, fall asleep when he needed them. Friends would run away uh, when, when he, he needed him. And Jesus, knowing all of this, says, I, I'm going to die for you who aren't very good friends with me. As proverb writer says in chapter 18, verse 24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I think his name is Jesus. I, I think all the good that we have experienced in friendships in our life is simply a small reflection of what we have received in Christ. I might say with the hymn writer, what a friend we have in Jesus. I hope you know him this way. Not just some, an object to study or words to say, but a friend. You can only by what Paul says here, by grace. Jesus will befriend you by grace. This is why he died on the cross to bear our sin upon him and rose three days later from the grave. And now he invites all, all sinners to come to him, repent of their sin and yield their life to him in faith, declaring through his scripture that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, and, and once you do that, you, Jesus enters into this relationship with you that he, you, you have him as a friend. And it's when you have Christ as a friend you can actually be the friend that he's called you to be. When you have struggled to be loyal, you look at how loyal Christ is to you and say, well, I could do that. When you struggle to forgive, you can see how Christ has forgiven you. And out of that power, you go on to forgive. When you, when you, when you want to cover, comfort but don't know how, you look at how Christ has comforted you. And out of that gospel, you find yourself empowered to do what he has called you to be. And so let me just say, as we end the book of Colossians, as Paul has said, grace be with you, that you might give grace to one another. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word and the great encouragement it is to us. We're thankful for our brothers and sisters that we even read about in scripture and the blessing they have been to your church. May we, because of Christ in our life, likewise seek to be that blessing to one another. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing.